You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, Pastor John is preaching on the second commandment in his series on the Ten Commandments, Do Not Make an Image of God. How do you feel when someone treats you like an object, as if you are a tool to be used or merely property? In giving us the Ten Commandments, God says that when we craft an object or a graven image, that we then use to replace or represent him as God, we are hating him. We are treating the creator like a creature, and he will not let that sin go unpunished. In this message from Exodus 20, we focus on the meaning of the second commandment, do not make an image of God. Today's message from the Ten Commandments is about the second commandment, which is basically do not make an image of God. Do not make some kind of a graven image would be the old King James. So let me read the Ten Commandments um, in their entirety, and then we will go ahead and look at the second commandment, do not make an image of God. In Exodus it says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Father in heaven, please help us understand your commands. Help us understand how good they are for us. Help us to love you by keeping your commands, to understand that, that they are good and that we are trusting you when we keep them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as is our typical practice here as we study these uh, Ten Commandments, I wanted to ask five questions. The first one is, do you see the beauty? Do you see the the structure and the inherent um, aesthetic beauty, the literary beauty of the particular command? And then the next question is, what does it mean? Or in previous lessons, I've said, how does it work? And so those are kind of the same question. How does the command work? What does it mean? 
And then the third question is, how do we as sinners fail to keep this commandment? How do we break this commandment in our daily lives and in our nature? And then the fourth question is, how does Jesus fulfill the command? How does he obey it? And not more than, and more than just obey it, how does he fulfill its requirements? And then the fifth question is, after having become a believer in Jesus, what do we do now? And so let's look at that second commandment again and see what it is for us, and then we'll start asking those questions. So again, this second command starts in Exodus 20, verse 4. And the if you were making a short version of the Ten Commandments, it would say, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Or an even shorter version might be, You shall not make for yourself an image of any form, or to not make any graven image, again, is what the King James says. But then look at how it's um, elaborated. He said, you shall not bow down to them, the, them referring to the images, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so that is the commandment that we're looking at specifically today. And again, our first question is, do you see the beauty of this commandment? What is going on here? And the first thing I want to point out from a literary standpoint is that the second command is kind of an expansion of or an example for the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have any other gods. And we talked about how God has to be the one and only true God and that we can't put someone else or something else in front of him. And then when we do, we're putting another God in our lives. And that's uh, idolatry of the worst kind, to put another God in the place of God. But then this commandment, do not make for yourself an image and do not bow down and worship it, is sort of an example way of how a person can make another God. And so <clears throat> God is trying to tell us one of the ways that you can put another God before you is by making an idol. And so you're not supposed to do that. But he's also kind of telling us that the act itself of making an idol, even if we think that we are worshiping the one true God, when we try to represent that one true God with some sort of an image or a construct or something man-made in our hearts or in our minds or with our hands, when we do that, we are in fact putting another God in front of us. Even if we would try to tell ourselves that we are worshiping the one true God, we just kind of want an image or some kind of a statue to help us out along the way. And so this is an example of how we can break the first commandment, but also an expansion upon it. And it gets at uh, some other aspects of the sin nature that we do want to replace God with something else. <clears throat> and so I just wanted us to understand that, that this is built upon the first commandment and doesn't really stand very well by itself apart from the first commandment. The meaning of the first and second commandments help each other in our understanding. The other thing that I wanted to point out is that if you're familiar with the scriptures as a whole, you will recognize several um, echoes throughout the rest of the Bible. The, the fact that um, you're not supposed to make for yourself an image in the uh, form of anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth reminds us of how God created the heavens and the earth. And the word image, we're not supposed to make for ourselves something in the image, reminds us a little bit of how God created us in his image, even though it is a different word in the Hebrew. But then also the another echo that I saw is um, that God gives 
love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And so in, elsewhere in the Bible, we see that the way that we love God is by keeping his commandments, which is an interesting thought in a way. How does loving God mean keeping his commandments? Or maybe even more uh, interestingly, how could we ask the question, um, how is keeping his commandments a way of showing love? And I can only say that when we see God's commandments and we obey them, we are acknowledging to him and to ourselves that his way is best. And so we're demonstrating trust in him that his commandments are the right way to live. It's not that God has some sort of um, pinball kind of feedback mechanism that if the little steel ball hits a thing, it goes ding, 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 ding. And so when we obey a certain commandment, it goes ding, 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 and God is happy because he hears the ding, ding. No, God isn't served by our um, keeping his commandments as if he needed anything. But the reason that it shows that we love him is that it demonstrates that he is a great enough treasure to trust. And when he says, do not steal, when we don't steal because he told us to, we're demonstrating that his approval is more important to us than our own possessions, even if we would steal for those things. And so um, that's how we love God, by keeping his commandments. So anyway, scriptural echoes throughout this. It makes sense that the 10 words would have uh, other echoes elsewhere in the Bible, and I don't want you to forget that. The other thing I wanted to notice is that of the 10 commandments, um, there are short versions, you know, do not steal, do not kill, and some that's the entire length of those short commands, but the other ones do not have any other God before me or keep the Sabbath day. But some of the commandments have an elaboration, a section that explains why or gives more content to the specific command, like do not covet, goes into a big list of all the ways you're not supposed to covet. And I noticed from my Bible that this particular commandment is the, sec the second longest elaboration. The longest one is the Sabbath day, and then this one has the second longest piece of text that talks about the commandment itself. And so God is trying to explain it to us so that we understand it. So those are just some of the things I wanted to point out in the beauty of the text itself. But the next question is, what does it mean? And so I want to just uh, go through some of the uh, words in the verses to make sure we understand what they mean and, and to pick up uh, any subtleties. It's pretty much exactly what it says, so it's not super hard to figure out. But I think, um, excuse me, I think there are some things we can figure out if we spend a little extra time looking at it. So the first thing I want to point out is when it says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, the Hebrew word for make there is also the same Hebrew word for the word being translated showing farther down in the text. Remember, he says, um, I'm going to punish the, the wicked to the third and fourth generation, but I'm going to show my love to a thousand generations. And so God's showing love is the same Hebrew word as you shall not make for yourself. And so this word has the, the notion of making, doing, uh, producing things, and showing forth or making manifest. And so just in the same way as that we're not supposed to manifest or make or show God in some way as an idol, is the same thing that God says, He, but he shows, he makes manifest, he does his love to a thousand generations. I just thought that was interesting. And if, uh, if you're ever assigned a translation project, it's always great when the same word is used multiple times because then you don't have to translate more words. And so... This is a repetition. I always like that. The other thing that I want to point out is when it says, you shall not make for yourself an image, 
The word behind <coughs> the word image there is actually based on the same word that a verb is to hew out or to carve, to cut away. And so when a person takes a piece of wood and chops it up and hews it into a statue or a rock and they, they shape it and, and chip away uh, unnecessary or pieces of the rock that they don't want, that's the word for hewing or making an image to construct, to, to, to build that. And so really it's often, this Hebrew word is often translated as idol the thing that is hewn out, the thing that is made by hands. So you shall not make for yourself an idol, a, a thing made by hands, in the form of. And the word for in the form of is the idea of something that has the appearance of or the likeness of. And it's also the Hebrew word that is sometimes translated all of the animals after their kinds and all of the, uh, this, the different fish after their kinds. The word kinds that we could almost uh, translate as species is it's that kind of the same structure, the same orientation, the same kind of animal, the same class. And so what he says is you're not supposed to make an idol of the same class as anything in the heaven or the earth or above. So you're not supposed to make an idol out of a fish or out of a, a cow, um, a calf. You're not supposed to make a, an idol or a, a, make a structure out of the sun or the moon or anything under in the waters below, <clears throat> a fish or a starfish or anything like that. So you're not supposed to do that. I think another way I could almost translate it a little more woodenly would be that you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of, you could actually say, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the image or likeness of anything. So don't make for yourself an idol. We know right up front that the purpose for the image is to help us somehow imagine or understand God. It's a image or a likeness. And, it, and when we do that, we're not supposed to do it of something in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. And some have been so strong as to say that this means that you can't make a picture or a statue of anything. And I think that that might be going a little too far. What this is getting at is you're not supposed to make a representative of God out of these things. Do not make something that will be a symbol for you or some sort of a, um, a manifestation of God himself. So you're not supposed to make something in that form. So it's not, I don't think this is a prohibition against all statues it's, or all carvings. It's a prohibition against using carvings or statues to somehow represent God. And so um, going farther into the verse, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, right? These things that you make, you're not supposed to bow down to them, worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And in our culture, the word jealous often has sort of a negative connotation. Uh, a jealous husband is sort of a person who's perceived as um, manipulative or controlling. He can't let his wife be herself. And that's not what this means at all. This is more like the the um, declaration of the exclusivity of God's relationship with us. I'm a jealous God means I'm exclusively God, and any other God you pursue is not good for you, and it's not what I am. And so God's jealousy is motivated out of his love. He knows that he's the only one that can meet our ultimate needs, and he's jealous for us. If uh, someone tried to lure my, my child into some sort of a terrible sin, maybe some kind of a drug addiction or something like that. I would be opposed to that drug dealer, that person who was trying to capture my child and get them involved in a life of um, substance abuse. So my response to try to protect my child from a wicked influence 
would be a jealous response in this sense of the word. I would be the jealous father. I would be trying to protect my son or my daughter away from such dangers. I would want them to uh, remember that they don't have to have that kind of uh, influence in their lives. I'm jealous for them. And so God is a jealous God. And then the word for punishing is kind of interesting. It's it's meeting out. It's visiting upon the children of the sin of their parents. It's it's visit. It's bringing about the consequences that are just the natural outflow of the decision of the sin itself. And so God isn't going out of his way to figure out a new and creative way to punish. He just lets the consequences of sin itself be a punishment. He meets it out. He he lets it play out. So that's one aspect of what the word punishing there means. <clears throat> the other thing I want to point out in this um, verse is that uh, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so what God is telling us here is that when we do this, when we break this commandment and we make for ourselves a form uh, of something in heaven or earth, and when we bow down to it, we are essentially hating him. He interprets that as hatred of him. How could that be? Why would he be so personally insulted by our decision to manifest him with some sort of an idol or an image? And I think we could maybe relate to that in and, and maybe another analogy, suppose that I was super rich, which is a big supposition, okay? So suppose I was really rich, and people tried to be my friend, and they, uh, you know, gave me parties, and they bought me things, and they, they did parties in my honor, and they gave me awards and stuff. But I knew all along that the only reason they were doing so was because they wanted me to give them some of my money. They wanted to come under the blessing of my great prosperity and wealth. And so I know that they don't appreciate me. I know that they don't love me. What they're actually doing is using me as a tool towards their own ends. And I know just as well as they know, and I know that they know, that if I was suddenly poor, they wouldn't be my friends at all. And so what that feels like when somebody uses me, it feels like hatred. You're not loving me as a person. You're hating me. You're demonstrating that you don't care at all about me. You just want what I can give you. And so I think in some ways that that uh, maybe helps us understand. But, but even if we can't understand, we still have to believe it's true that God views the creation of an idol as a specific act of hatred against him. It's an interesting thing because um, this whole idolatry thing seems sort of odd in our culture. We don't have things on our wall or things on our shelves very often that we would consider an idol or that we made in purpose to be an idol. I suppose some people do, but uh, you know, maybe some kind of crystal or new age symbol or a dream catcher or some kind of thing that wishes us good luck, a lucky horseshoe at the door or something like that. But most of us don't have images. But uh, in Israel's case, in Israel's history, this was a real snare for them. For some reason, they were prone towards trying to create some sort of a statue or an image, like right after the Ten Commandments, what they did with Aaron is he took all the gold of all the people and he built a, a golden calf and they, they bowed down and worshipped it. Worshipped it. And, um, and Aaron said, Behold, a God who rescued you from Egypt. And so they, they took the Almighty God and his reputation and name and they represented it with a golden calf and God perceived it as hatred. 
But I want to say that just because a very religious community, like the Jews, um, they would replace God with other objects of clear worship, like in a temple or some sort of Baal worship or some sort of high place, even though they use religious symbols, that doesn't mean that those of us who come from a more of a secular culture, we don't have our own uh, secular kinds of idols. They might not be as obviously religious symbols, but they are nevertheless uh, design statements or branding issues that are actually idolatrous for us, that we would put those in the place of God. So God views all these things as hatred toward him. But then he says, but showing love to a thousand generations. The word love there, when God shows love, this is the word that is sometimes translated in the Old Testament as uh, loving faithfulness or, you, or um, loving kindness. Your covenant loyalty, it's the Hebrew word hesed you might have heard before. And so this is the idea that God keeps his promise to love. God so loved the world that he keeps his promise. And he brings his son, he sends his son into the world. And so this is covenant loyalty, it's faithfulness to a promise. It's love that is not um, flowing out of just a desire for the loved one, just the beauty of the loved one, but actually, even in, despite the absence of the beauty of the loved one, this love is manifested because the lover, God, is bound by his own promise to do so. So this is covenant love. It's guaranteed love. So God shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him. And so that word for love is not the same because human beings aren't um, able to be as perfectly hesed love. And this is the word, this is the second word for love is the typical word for love that is used to describe a love between friends or a love between a man and a woman or a love even for an object of somebody that loves something. And so um, those who love God, those who as human beings, as much as we can, we love God and we show that by keeping his commandments. And then one more thing I wanted to talk about in the meaning of this particular um, commandment is notice this whole flow about I'm a jealous God and I punish children for the sins of their parents, but I, I love a thousand generations of those who love me. And so this, this, uh, this whole thing makes us a little uncomfortable, especially this idea of punishing children for the sins of their parents. It seems unfair. I'm going to even put it in a, a statement here. It seems unfair for God to punish the children for the sins of their parents. That's not right. Everybody should be punished for their own sins. And we'll, uh, we'll come back to this. But, um, you know, there have been various efforts to explain this particular dilemma. And um, some of the ways is that it's true that when a parent teaches his children to worship idols, that that same sin is something that the child can pick up on and then the grandchildren pick up on that. And so some have interpreted this as, oh, it's not that God actually punishes the children. It's just that the consequences of the parent's sin flow down generation after generation because it's so easy to pick up the bad habits of your ancestors. And so um, in that sense, what they're saying, it's not God punishing, it's just that the people kind of pick up the same thing and deserve the punishment. But no, God is, I don't think that's entirely it because God is actually punishing the children for the sins of their parents. And there is a passage later in the Old Testament where it says, no longer will you quote this proverb to me that the fathers have drink the wine, but the children's teeth are set on edge. You know, this proverb that, you know, the, uh, the adults get to enjoy the fun, but then the children get the bad side, the, the consequences. And, um, and he said, no longer will that be true. Each person will be held uh, accountable for their own sin. And that's still true. And so this 
if there was some kind of connection here, it seems to be uh, mitigated or diminished with later on revelation. But it's still, the reality is, is that Adam and Eve sinned. And we are still punished for their sin. But it's also because we do ratify their sin ourselves as well. And so sin came into the world and death through sin. But the point that I'm trying to make right now is that it seems unfair for God to punish the children of the sins of their parents. And that seems like, it feels like a legitimate objection against God. And I want to just put that, tuck that away and don't forget, because we're going to come back to that in a minute. Okay, so we've tried to ask the question, do you see the beauty? And what does the commandment mean? And so now I want to talk about how do we fail? How do we break this commandment in our sins? What do you and I do that makes us guilty of that? And the first thing I want to say is that we have a tendency to replace God with a creature. God is the uncreated being. He is of a different type of reality. We are, we are an ontological dualist. In other words, there are two kinds of realities. There's one reality, and that is the uncreated realm. And in the uncreated realm is one person, uh, one being, God, who has one essence but three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that one being, that one essence of God, is uncreated. They existed eternally. They're self, they, they, uh, he is self-existent. He has no bounds to time. He lives in his own realm of reality. The other reality, the other ontology, is the created realm. Everything that you and I know directly is in the created realm. You and I are creatures, and we live in a world full of creations. The sun and the moon and the stars and the sky and, and all of the entire universe, the galaxies and, and the water outside and everything, these are all part of the created realm. They're creatures and they're creations. And so when we, as creatures, try to worship God, and in the process we decide to replace God with some creature, we have violated the whole distinction of those two realities. We've made the uncreated one like a creature. And by so doing, we insult and offend his person because he is one essence that is an uncreated essence. And so when we try to make the uncreated one into a creature, we are, we are offending, we are rejecting his ultimate essence as God. He becomes less than himself. And so we have a tendency to replace God with a creature. The Bible tells us that people, uh, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and start to worship created things rather than the creator, it says in Romans. And then images made to look like mortal man. And so sometimes people would worship a, an image of a man. Like Nebuchadnezzar made the big statue of himself and told everybody to bow down and worship. Or, or birds or animals or reptiles even. And to somehow make these things our gods and to worship them. And the Egyptians from which Israel has just been rescued prior to these giving of the Ten Commandments, they had all kinds of gods. The god of the sun god and, and the, the grain god, the, the river Nile. And even the ten plagues are specific uh, insults against the various deities, the false gods, the non-existent gods of the Egyptians. And so we're not supposed to replace God with a creature. And again, I would, I would say that we would probably all argue that we don't really do that. I don't have a bunch of little Buddhas on my shelf, although some of you might. Uh, maybe just as an as a interesting artifact or something from another country, but... But you could actually have a Buddha. I think sometimes Christian might have um, 
you know, like I mentioned already, um, well, uh, those uh, dream catcher things that Native Americans would use, a, sort of a magical spell or a lucky rabbit's foot or different kinds of things that are superstitious that we have superstitions about. Those are ways that we're starting to tease with and play with this idea of putting something else that's a creature in a place that has authority that only God should have. I would want to submit that it's probably dangerous to have a picture of Jesus in your home. If you think that somehow having a picture of Jesus makes you feel warm inside and it reminds you that he's watching you and taking care of you, what you're really doing is you're substituting for the real Jesus an image, actually quite sadly, a, um, a Western civilization caricature image. He doesn't look Jewish at all. He looks like an Anglo-Saxon of some sort, which would be inaccurate to start with. But to to um, have a picture of Jesus in our home to somehow comfort us and to remind us is a dangerous way to go because of this commandment. We're replacing the real God with something less than him. And we're trying to let something less than him represent him. And we have a tendency to get mixed up when that happens and to miss how great he really is. And so God's own commandment, even if I can't explain for you why it's dangerous, he says, don't do that. Don't make an image of anything in heaven or of anything on earth or of anything under the earth to replace me or to be in my place, to take me and my in my um, my being. Don't let something come into your life. Don't have an idol. Don't make something with your man-made, your homemade, man-made tools. Don't hew something out for yourself that has any kind of ultimate significance. Only God as the person, the uncreated being, is to have significance, and we can't manifest him in some physical form. The other thing that we do when we commit this command, when we break this commandment, is we wind up objectifying God. We turn him into a non-person. So worse than, or just as bad as trying to represent God with some kind of a statue of a golden calf, that's bad enough. But what's also part of that is that uh, abstractly in our mind, we're making God into an object rather than a person. And so we're turning him into a tool or a, a force, some inanimate thing. Um, how many ways do we say that? The uh, Mother nature, right? Mother nature is a way of, uh, of describing the divine power without really giving it a personal tone of who it really is. We call it mother nature. Mother nature will do this. Or sometimes other words we use, we we misuse names. We you know, refer to God as the, the big man upstairs or, you know, the Santa in the sky. Or I wonder how many times maybe, you know, even when we say the good Lord, we're, we're using a colloquial phrase to, to somehow objectify God and make him less than, uh, than a person. It somehow is an incantation. You know, one of the terrible sins of um, slavery, for example, is when chattel slavery occurs when one group of peoples or one person treats other people like cattle or property, one of the horrible parts about that is that the, the slave owner treats the slave as a non-person. They become just like an animal. And, and just like the farmer doesn't care about his horse any more than just as a tool for his field, when we as a human being treat another human being who is created in God's image, when we create them, when we treat them that way, we're objectifying them. We're using them. This is the terrible sin that is associated with, with um, huge offenses like chattel slavery or 
um, even pornography, right? Pornography objectifies the human body and makes it an object of lust and something for me to be using rather than for me to honor as created in God's image. So the men and women in a, in a pornographic material are being objectified. They're no longer persons. They're just objects. And that is a terrible sin. And God himself does not want to be treated that way. But that's how we tend to objectify God. We make him into an object instead of letting him be a person. And he doesn't like it. He feels like it's hatred. Another way that I think, and this is the third way that I think we break this commandment, and that is when we somehow put limits, when we're limiting God or binding him by some sort of constraint um, or some kind of how we judge God that we would place on it, like, if there's a God, he has to be a good God. Have you ever heard an argument like, I don't believe in God because how could an all-powerful God allow suffering? Because if he's all-powerful, then he should be able to, to um, fix the suffering. And if he's loving, he would. And so if you tell me that your God in the Bible is all-powerful and that he is love, I can prove to you that he must not be because I cannot see any way that God would allow suffering if he loved people and if he was powerful enough to do something about it. And so that kind of an argument seems to make sense. But the problem is, is that what the person is doing is they're limiting God. They're binding God under some sort of a moral dilemma, or they're passing judgment on God, but they're doing so from their finite frame of reference as a human being. And, and the question to come back against that argument of um, how could God be good and allow suffering is, how do you know, creature, that he's not being good by allowing suffering? In other words, do you have all of the data? Do you see the entire picture? Is it possible that me as a finite person cannot see all of the ways that this is working out, but that another person with infinite capacities like God has a way to see how suffering can be good and that in the end, his love for us is made more complete even in our suffering. And so what we do when we limit or bind God is we're making him smaller than us. We're putting him into some sort of a rule set or a boundary that we are going to pass judgment on him and say, God can't be true unless he does this. God can't be a real God unless he solves my problem or takes away my pain or, or gives me my blessings or gives me all the things. Hey, I lived a good Christian life and I did everything the right way and he's supposed to make it all work out. And if he doesn't work it out, if he lets me suffer, then he's not doing it right. He's broken his end of the deal. He's not being, he's not being what I've made him to be. Do you see what's happening? I'm creating in my own mind a structure, a rule set, a value system that is greater than God himself, as if I could. And I am just a finite creature. I could never, I could never construct that. Let me go back. Remember what I said to put in your pocket? It seems unfair for God to punish the children for the sins of their parents. That's the way it feels in my heart. But when I do that, I am imposing my human reasoning onto the almighty, uncreated God. And I'm putting him in a box. I'm limiting him. I'm binding him by my moral judgment. I'm passing judgment on God. How dare you punish the children for the sins of their parents? Now, somehow, some way, God has a right 
to be God. And he'll make all that work out. And nobody's going to ever be able to convict him of, of sin or convict him of wrongdoing. And God gives exceptions. When he passes judgment on a nation and he says, they'll be never a part of my people, he always makes exceptions. And individuals like Rahab the harlot or, or um, Ruth the Moabite is saved out of those terrible situations. So God is always doing things. We don't know the whole picture. And so when God says he brings punishment on the fourth generation, we need to trust him for that. And who are we to pass judgment on him? We need to fear him, not view that he needs to fear us. And so that very objection that we have, if we let it play out, is actually breaking the second commandment. We are limiting and binding and judging God based on our perception of moral propriety, right? God's not good enough for us. And who are we, right? We are we are demonstrating our own arrogance, our own pride. So that's how we fail. So um, I hope you're following along good. And so the next question I have is, how does Jesus fulfill this commandment? How does Jesus fulfill the commandment to not make for himself an image that he would bow down to? And so first of all, I guess we just have to say that Jesus never made an idol, right? Jesus would, we would know that he would never bow down to a Baal or to an Ashtoreth or to some sort of a Buddha or some sort of a, a some, any kind of a superstitious thing. Jesus never was. And then by contrast, the reason is that Jesus always served the Father. Jesus always obeyed his Father for sure all the time. Look in John, he says, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. So Jesus didn't even do his own things on his own, but he spoke just what the Father has taught him all the time. He said, the one who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. Jesus never, ever, ever did anything with an object, even though he was a carpenter and he built things. And maybe a stone cutter is another interpretation of Joseph's skill. And so he, the carpenter's son, even though his father, his earthly father built things, Jesus never, ever, ever hated God by objectifying God and worshiping God through some kind of an image that Joseph built. I wouldn't say that Joseph never built anything like that. But the point is, is that he built things. They were just not idols. And Jesus never, ever, ever broke that commandment. Okay? So Jesus always served the Father. He never worshipped an idol. He never objectified God. And so when we say he never objectified God, that's another way of saying that Jesus reveals his Father as a person. Never once does God ever imply that God is some sort, does Jesus ever imply that God is some sort of force or the energy that flows in and out of all the beings and in and around things, some impersonal thing. Jesus reveals his Father as a person. And one of the most remarkable things about Jesus' teaching is that he viewed God as his Father. He called him Abba Father. And he says uh, in the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches his people how to pray, he says, Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. That's so unusual in his day for that kind of a relationship to the Almighty God. And so Jesus reveals his Father as a person. Look in particular here in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And he's praying for you and I in this part. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me from the creation of the world. So God loves me, Jesus is saying. 
God's a person, and, and he wants us, you and I as his believers, followers, to see that glory with him. And then he says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. I know you as a person, and they know that you have sent me. And he said, I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. And so Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's revealing to us that this is not just a powerful God, but that he's a loving God, and that he loves us, and he loves Jesus, and he loves us the same way as he loves Jesus, and that Jesus is in God, and Jesus is in us, and we're all in unity together through God's amazing work of salvation. So Jesus reveals his Father as a person. He does not objectify God. And then Jesus never limited the Father. Remember I said how we have a tendency in our sins to limit or to somehow uh, judge God, but Jesus never ever did. And it, this is the most amazing thing of, of all, really. When you think about that, Jesus on the garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed, this is the, he doesn't sleep ever again on this earth. He's going to die before he never sleeps again. This is the night of his trial. He's tortured. And so late that night, he says, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, an intimate term. He says, everything is possible for you. So Jesus, even at the deepest hour of his life, when he's, his soul is heavy to the point where he's sweating drops of blood and he's facing the worst terrible kind of oppression that he could ever face, and he knows from the scriptures what he's going to go through in the next 12 to 14 hours. He knows all those things, and he, and he says, everything's possible for you. I'm not putting any limits on you. And he says, please, take this cup from me. You can do it. Yet, not what I will but what you will. And so Jesus submits his will to the Father. So even though he knew that God could do anything, God would not violate his promise, and God would not violate his love for us, and God would not violate the mission that he gave to Jesus, and Jesus himself would not violate the commandment that the Father had given him. And Jesus loves us so much that he himself would not fail to do this. And so he says, yet not what I want, not what I will, but you will, and because of that phrase, because of that act of obedience of Jesus, you and I can be saved because of his work on the cross. So Jesus fulfills the, the second commandment as always serving the Father, as revealing his Father as a person, and is never, ever limiting the Father in his life. How do we get that? How, how do we switch from being people who make idols and who objectify God and put our own judgment above. How do we get the benefits of Jesus's work? And the answer is that Jesus himself suffered deeply on the cross. Remember, we said Jesus always served the Father. And yet that day on the cross, he was despised and rejected of men. And his father turned his face away from him. And so even though he served the Father all the time, his father uh, brought the lights down and darkness was over the face of the earth and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and God, God the Father turns his back on the one who had always served him. You see, what was happening here was that Jesus was becoming sin for us. You know, Jesus reveals his Father as a person and it's a terrible thing to objectify God, to make him into an object. But ironically, God now turns Jesus into an object and makes him an object of derision. He who knew no sin didn't just take our sins. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin 
And in a sense, God objectifies Jesus and, and places on him the sins of us all. He has borne all of our transgressions. And so as a person, it's not just the guilt. He bears the stink and the smell, and he's the shame of our sins. And they're all put on him, and Jesus is horribly objectified on the cross. Look at him. His face is marred beyond recognition. His body is naked. He's objectified, and people mock him. The, the soldiers spit at him, and they, they beat him with rods over and over again. And he sits up on the cross, and, and he is in darkness. And he says, I thirst. His body is becoming sin for us, and he's bearing all of our punishment on the cross. God, 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 God punishes Jesus, innocent as he was, because he became sin for us. And God gave Jesus unlimited breath, unlimited um, drink of the cup of God's wrath. You see, you or I, we deserve an eternity in hell because our sin is of infinite uh, guilt. Where our, our, our sin is infinitely bad. We have sinned against God in an infinite way because he's an infinite being. But I am a finite being. And the only way a finite being can pay an infinite cost would be to have an infinite amount of time to do so. But Jesus is an infinite being. He's an infinite person, God the Son. And he, as an infinite person, can can expend an infinity, an eternity in hell in a finite amount of time. And so in those three hours on the cross, an infinite person experiences for a finite time the horrible judgment that sin deserves. And Jesus bears in his body the punishment for our sins. You see, when we understand that, when we realize what Jesus did for us, when we realize the severity of God's law and the guilt with which we have deserve death and that Jesus our champion steps in for us and takes our place for us and bears all that punishment then we realize that our sins can be paid for and it's given to us as good news as a gift and Jesus has done this great thing he loves us so much my sin is so great I cannot save myself Jesus's love is so great he pays the way I give myself to him and God sees me in the perfect righteousness of Jesus you see, what I want us to understand here is that we do not obey the commandments in order to please God. Rather, because Jesus obeyed the commandments, if we trust in Jesus as our substitute, then God is pleased with us already. And now whether we obey the commandments or not doesn't matter. Jesus has already done so. But we want to obey his commandments now because we love him. And so that leads to our last question then. What do we do now? As believers, now that we understand that our sins have been paid for, how do you and I live in a way that is growing more and more? How do we show our gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for us? It's not to earn God's favor, but it's to show God how much we love him. And so here's some ideas. Remember how we have a tendency to replace God with a creature? Well, instead of doing that, stay away from idols. Don't let something else in your life, don't let something or some idea become ultimate for you. Don't have an object that you love or a hobby that you desire or an ability that you enjoy or a hobby that you partake in or a person that you love or a relationship that you really enjoy or some pleasure that you pursue. Don't let those things become ultimate. Stay away from idols. Stay away from man-made things that would somehow rob our hearts 
of seeing the great uncreated one as the one and only being we should worship. Remember how we have a tendency, a tendency to objectify God, to make him as a non-person? Well, instead of doing that, worship the person of Jesus. Even as Christians, we have a tendency to sometimes make even the Bible some sort of a preference. I, I, in my own life, I would say that I, I, I really got into the Proverbs because I loved how wisdom was great for living. But you know, you could make even the Proverbs or other moral, moral ethical systems become your end and miss Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to the people of his day? He said, you know, you study the scriptures and that's really good. But I need you to know that these scriptures talk about me. If you don't see me in the Old Testament, then you're just studying a bunch of words and a bunch of ethical systems, a very moralistic approach to life, but you're missing the author of life. Isn't it something that Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that in the last day there'll be people who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we um, prophesy in your name and cast out demons? And so they're going to know God's name. They're going to know Lord, Lord. They're going to be on great acts of, of service, great acts of spiritual conquest over the powers of evil. And Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. You see, God wants us to love Jesus as a person. What a treasure he is. He's the joy of heaven, not all the stuff I get. I'm not going to heaven because I can go golfing or see my loved ones, although those are great things, I suppose, if golf could be there. But the reason heaven is so great is because we get to be with Jesus and we get to have even more relationship with him. So the person of Jesus, we need to worship his person. And then remember our tendency to limit or bind or judge God, right? We, we try to pull him down within our grasp. And I, I want to say that what we should do now is we should, instead, we should meditate on his transcendence. It's true that Jesus is close to us and he loves us and that's an important thing. But we also need to remember that God is high above. And when I'm tempted to look at earthly things or when I'm afraid of earthly disasters, one of the key indicators that I have an idol in my life is that if there's a particular thing or person or idea in my mind, that if it was taken away from me, if I would lose that person or if I would lose that object, that I would be devastated and I would even want to maybe even uh, take my own life because I was so desperate. What that proves is that that one thing, that idea that I had, if I'm willing to lose it all because I lost that, then that thing has become an idol for me. It's become a God for me. This is one of the reasons that Jesus brings suffering into our life, to remind us of what things matter and what things don't. And when we hold on to our health or we hold on to a possession so tightly, we start to love it more than God. And sometimes God, by his wonderful kindness, takes it away from us so that we learn. I'll never forget to learn from Job. Job was accused by Satan of loving God only because of all the stuff God gave him. And God did give Job a lot of stuff. He was really rich and he had a wonderful family. But God allowed Satan to take all that away. And Job learned that he loved God and it was proven that he loved God for God, not for all the stuff he did. And that's the question we all have to deal with. And so we need to meditate on God's transcendence to realize that he is the ultimate, ultimate end. That's the reason we want to live. So I hope that you've understood these words that I've tried to explain and that we would uh, learn how to obey the second commandment because we love Jesus. 
And, and even more so, I hope you've learned to worship Jesus as a person even more when you think about what he went through so that we wouldn't have to experience hell on the cross. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Forgive us for the times that we hated you by putting something else in your place. I'm so sorry. I never will ever want to worship another when you deserve to be worshipped. Help me never to have an object in my life that matters to me more than it should. Help me to trust you and you alone. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. For more information about our church, please check out our website, wpbiblefellowship.org. Have a great week.